When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Turn to the right! What kind of name is Ed for a pretty thing like you? Short for Edwina. Turn to the right! You're a flower, you are. Just a little desert flower. Raising Arizona is, yes, a story about a childless couple who kidnap a baby. But first, it's a love story. And specifically, Josh, a Coppin love story. Does that mean it is eligible for our top five this week? Sure. I think it's worth consideration. Man, how about Nick Cage, though, in that one? Still in the dreamy phase of his career. I suppose if you find Woody Woodpecker dreamy, Josh, Cops in Love is the subject of this week's top five, inspired by director Park Janook's latest decision to leave about a police detective who develops a dangerous attraction to a murder suspect. That top five and a review of Decision to Leave ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Park Chan-wook is among the better-known contemporary Korean auteurs. Josh, his last film, the period romance The Handmaiden, was an arthouse hit, one of my favorite movies of its year. His 2013 English-language debut, Stoker, with Nicole Kidman and Mia Wasikowska, was pretty well-received. And his revenge thriller, a great film, Old Boy, was a cult hit in the early 2000s and was later remade into, let's say, maybe not one of the better films of Spike Lee's career. Yeah, let's let's just move on. We both like Spike too much to talk about his old boy. With the exception of old boy, you've been a fan of Park's work, Josh, but am I reading the tea leaves of your Twitter posting about decision to leave correctly that this new one might be your favorite film of his so far? Yeah, let's spoil it. It is. I mean, I'm by no means a completist, but I did love this one more than the others I've seen. Later in the show, we'll talk about decision to leave and more, but first... Let's get to Cops in Love. A listener suggestion, actually, came in via Travis Whedon. He's at TWeedon underscore film. That's T-W-E-E-D-O-N underscore film on Twitter. And we decided to run with it. Certainly appropriate here for Decision to Leave. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But we did have to, as we always do, think about how we're exactly defining the topic here. Josh, what did you come up with? I narrowed in on there are romantic relationships between cops and others that I think we could have included, and probably that would be okay, but inspired by decision to leave, I wanted to lean into the danger element, which I think is usually part of the relationship when you're talking about cops and suspects or a cop and someone else in their life. There's usually some sort of risk. Maybe that's a better way to put it, a risk involved in that romance. And so I tried to guide myself that way and think about this. Think about this as top five cops dangerously in love. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. That means that we're going to overlook some picks that I saw in response to you on Twitter, like a great one from Ofer Liebergal, who says, can we say there is danger in Magnolia? John C. Riley, a cop in Magnolia and has that relationship of sorts with Melora Walters. We also got this one from Chad Camello on Twitter, who said, what about Chris O'Dowd in Bridesmaids? <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> failing, failing to cite Annie for her broken taillights, endangered other drivers, and could have gotten him disciplined. I mean, I don't know how you argue with that, Josh. High nevertheless, stakes. Yeah, nevertheless, we did not go with either of those cops in love. I agree with you. I was thinking about that element of danger, something about it being illicit or inappropriate, wrong, compromising their cases, perhaps. But I also wanted to open it up to it being dangerous and it potentially being compromising just in terms of their identity. I think that's especially appropriate to decision to leave. In fact, more so because I don't know that we really ever feel like his life is in danger, but his entire identity mm -hmm. is at risk. There's another big one on here that someone suggested on Twitter. And before producer Sam could even call it out in our Slack for us to debate it, my daughter Sophie saw your top five post and instantly texted me in all caps, and maybe seven exclamation points, Chunking Express. Mm. And I initially dismissed it because I think like most people, I was thinking completely about the Tony Leung second act, and you've got an obsession there, but it's more on the part of the Fei Wong character right. for him, not the other way around. But that first act, Takeshi Kaneshiro's cop, is certainly obsessed, so much so that he eats the can of pineapples every day, Josh. And if that isn't dangerous to your health, then what is? Yeah, probably a lot of sugar in those canned pineapples, I have to imagine. I think we both set Chunking Express aside for this list, despite our appreciation for it. Yeah, I didn't go in that direction. Did think about it. It was actually one of those that came to mind early on. But again, trying to... You got, you got it. You nailed it. Risk involved, red flags, right? A relationship where there's a red flag of some sort, or it comes at a cost, comes at a professional cost, or as you said, a personal slash identity cost. I don't know. We'll see where you ended up, Adam, but I did also try to limit it to characters who were in law enforcement. So rather than private detectives, you know, I think there's something about this being part of your profession as a law enforcement officer of some kind that there's an additional level of danger. It makes it you're more official. And so the risk is more official. Maybe more codes are potentially being broken, including legal ones. So I was able to pull that off, stretch the definition of cop a little bit, but I was able to pull that off for my list. Yeah, I approached it similarly because I just think you're now approaching a top five where it's essentially your favorite hard-boiled detectives and right. their femme fatales. And that's a separate list. Three other quick disclaimers before we jump into the movies we actually did consider and include. An all-time great film, at least here on Film Spotting, that certainly would be in contention or should be in contention for this list is Out of Sight. The Steven Soderbergh film with Jennifer Lopez as Karen Sisko. She's a federal marshal. I think that counts. Definitely. It doesn't count, though, because it's in the film spotting pantheon. You know what else is in the film spotting pantheon? And these might have been ineligible anyway because of the criterion you just mentioned. But Chinatown with the P.I. that Jack mm -hmm. Nicholson plays, you could at least consider it. You'd have to consider it. And then there's Vertigo, an yes. ex-cop, an ex-cop in this case, but one that it doesn't matter. We didn't have to wrestle with. We can't include it. 
we can't, which is probably for the best. It would have been my easy number one, even though he's retired. I just think the, the pairing of the obsession angle does work so well with decision to leave that I would have had to gone in that direction. So had to set that aside and choose some other films. Your number five. Detective Giovanni Malloy, played by Mark Ruffalo in In the Cut. This is a Jane Campion film that I was initially cool on when it came out in 2003, but listeners who followed us along on our Jane Campion overview last year know that I gave it a thorough reappraisal and ended up completely flipping on it. It's now my fourth favorite film of hers, which is you know, that's considerable because I appreciate everything she's done and rank The Piano and The Power of the Dog up there with any film of their respective years. Now, in in the cut, Ruffalo's Detective Malloy is a sporting character, and he's also a suspect for much of the film. At least we suspect him as audience members, even though he's investigating this series of grisly murders in the New York City neighborhood where Meg Ryan's Franny lives. She's a college instructor. Still, many of the clues point to him. He's very sexually aggressive with her. He's unorthodox in his practices. He's already bending all sorts of rules. And so you wonder how far he might go with that. Yet, all of that being said, the really sexually aggressive Malloy and the exhausted Franny, they do embark on this ill-advised affair that's clearly not a good idea for either of them. Hey, listen. I could be whatever you want me to be. You want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to uh, be your best friend and f*** you, treat you good, no problem. Ain't much I haven't done. The only thing I want to do is beat you up. So many Campion characters are like this. They make a passionate choice. And then they have to deal with the practical, but also the societal repercussions of that choice. I think we saw a lot of that in our overview. So it's sort of inevitable that this type of relationship, this dangerous cop in love relationship would pop up in one of their films. Thinking about it within the context of this list, Adam, I think I understood another way she was perhaps drawn to the book that this movie is based on. That was one of the things that perplexed me. The first time I saw it made a lot more sense within the context of her other films and I think makes sense within the context of this list. Now, the way things do end up in in the cut, and I'm not going to give it away in case there are some aspiring Campion completists who still need to check it off their list, but I'd say it's a bit of a twist on the cops in love, in dangerous love conceit, at least as we usually see it play out, especially within the femme fatale context. So that's all I'm going to say here, but just a little more evangelizing for In the Cut on the heels of that Campion overview. Yeah, an honorable mention for me, I was with you in that I was a little bit cold on it when I saw it the first time, when we then watched it as part of that Campion marathon, something was opened up for me. I think I always appreciated Ruffalo's performance. I maybe didn't fully appreciate Meg Ryan's until this second time around. But yeah, same for me. Ruffalo is so good. There's that sleaziness he brings to that character, and yet he's magnetic. You understand why she's always drawn to him. There's a charge when he's around and in anything that he does, both physically and with his words. And I think part of the twist, too, on the cop in love idea here is that I think she has way stronger feelings for him than mm. he may have for her or that he is probably using her for sexual reasons, I think we can at least consider that. But the movie then does 
open up and by the end of it make you really consider what is happening between them and how much as a viewer you maybe actually want that to continue despite the fact that you do see how they're bad for each other in many ways. Yeah, and it's hard to gauge all that in the moment, right? Because you really don't know. This is very much a thriller where there is a final act climactic reveal. And so you really don't know where you stand or where they stand with each other until that is shown. And then you can look back on the relationship and yeah. start thinking about it in the terms you just described. Yeah. And especially part of the reason I even ascribe some nefarious motives to him, if you will, is that we see him the way she sees him initially, which is as this dangerous figure. You assume he's up to something, right? My number five is maybe not quite so deep, Josh, as Jane Campion's in the cut, but I'm going with a guy who is, let's not forget, an FBI agent. He is Johnny Utah, Keanu Reeves in Catherine Bigelow's Point Break. He falls for Tyler, played by Lori Petty, and she is Bodie's girl, as I recall. It's been many years since I've seen Point Break, though I probably watched it about a hundred times when I was a kid. Patrick Swayze is Bodie, the ringleader of the ex-presidents, the bank-robbing surfers that Keanu Reeves infiltrates to try to bring them down. Of course, wait a minute, just say up. that say that again because there's too many too many movies that don't have as brilliant of ideas. Who are they, Adam? Bank robbing surfers or surfing bank robbers. Thank you. I love it. I, I'm not sure which one is is more appropriate. Let's go with bank robbing surfers. Yeah, yeah that's that's who they are. I agree. Core. And that matters, Josh, for <laughs> this movie and this pick. In terms of danger, well, he does wake up in the middle of the night to her pointing a gun at him when she has discovered his badge, which he probably shouldn't have left out just sitting there with FBI written on it. But of course, what she's most upset about to my previous point is that he lied to her. He didn't just lie to her about this, but then in the course of this grand lie, everything he said was probably untrue, including what he had told her in order to try and connect with her about supposedly what happened to his parents. So Josh, what she's mad about isn't just that he's a cop, but he's not his authentic self. Mm. A lawyer! You lied to me! Tyler, put the gun down. I'll bet you lied about everything. I'll bet you lied about your parents! You just tell me the truth, Johnny. Did your parents die in a car accident? Did they? They live in Columbus, Ohio. I work bank robbery. The guys I'm after are surfers. I needed you at first, but after that, I did you. Don't you have a soul? She also puts him at risk with Bodie because he can use her against him, which he does, eventually taking her hostage to force Johnny to help them with their last big heist of the summer, further compromising him that way. That's what Bodie maybe really wants to do, wants to get him into trouble, have something that he can hold over him. But I also think because of the nature of their relationship, he probably wants to give him that last little adrenaline rush as well. And the fact is, this is really more of a cop and love story about Johnny Utah's love for Bodie, yes. I think, than it is Tyler. But I'm sticking with it, Josh. Come on, Bodie. 
it's time to go. Now you gotta go back with me. I love it. And I'm going to keep the Catherine Bigelow talk going. Actually, this was, yes, maybe the more sensible way to go. I definitely considered it, had a strong idea that it would be on your list. But I'm going to give my number four pick to Officer Megan Turner, played by Jamie Lee Curtis in Bigelow's Blue Steel from 1990. I've actually been on a bit of a Bigelow kick recently for spooky season. I just watched Near Dark. For the first time, this is her incredibly atmospheric vampire western that has just a wild supporting turn by Bill Paxton, who who might come up later on my list. Now, Blue Steel, not as good as Point Break, not as good as Near Dark, but it's definitely worth seeing. And turns out it is a good fit for this list. Curtis's Megan Turner is a recent Police Academy grad who is investigating a series of shootings in New York City while starting to date stockbroker Eugene Hunt, played by Ron Silver. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that. I'll spare you all the plot synopsis. But basically, we know before Megan does that Hunt, Silver's character, is this gun-obsessed psycho who sees her as some sort of kindred spirit after she shoots a suspect during a grocery store holdup. So for a good chunk of the film, we understand the guy is no good, even though we're watching her fall for him. And so being in that position, it gives the early scenes of her falling in love, basically gives them an extra layer of menace. Look. What? Me. You. Okay, run it back in. Why me? Why you? Such a stupid question, I'm sorry. I'm actually happy, very happy to be here. Thanks. Of course, we as the audience, we're asking that same question, why her? Which the movie does go on to answer as it reveals the depths of Hunt's depravity and why he is obsessed with her. And really maybe just as equally obsessed with her gun, actually. There's a lot of interesting things going on here about interrogating gun worship, even within the context of a police thriller. Now, as you'd expect, Bigelow, very attentive to the flipped gender dynamics at play here. You could sort of see from a skewed angle that Silver is something of a more aggressive femme fatale in the movie. Curtis emphasizes this play on gender roles in her performance. There's a subplot involving Megan's father and his abuse of her mother. That's very interesting in this regard. So even if Blue Steel It's a bit wobbly in terms of the filmmaking compared to other Bigelow pictures like Point Break. I do think the ideas at play about gender roles in law enforcement, about gun fetishism, and yeah, about dangerous love, they're very, very intriguing here. This was my homework title for the list. I remember when it came out, being very curious about it. It was right around the time of Point Break um, and other, and near dark, other pictures that had kind of put Bigelow on the map. Never had an opportunity to see it until now, and I was glad I was finally able to catch up with it. Blue Steel, still a blind spot for me, Josh, so I'm going to have to trust your judgment with that pick. My number four is Donald Sutherland's John Clute from Alan J. Pakula's Clute. And he's a character who's a small-town detective, gets hired by some family friends because a big chemical company exec has disappeared 
in his office, the police find an obscene letter in the office that was addressed to a call girl named Bree Daniels, who lives in New York City. That, of course, is Jane Fonda's character. And when he comes to the big city, he has to follow up on that one lead that he has. And you know that the mild-mannered, reserved Clute is inevitably going to be drawn to this woman who feels or seems to feel as if she is always in control of her body and understands her sexuality and how to use it. And you know that she is going to use it against him. And despite this very tough exterior that he puts up, this kind of introverted, unimpressed facade that he has, you know that he is probably going to crumble. But he does play him with a real innocence that tells you as a viewer that Everything about this would be bad for him if he becomes obsessed with her. It's not only potentially going to put his life in danger, it's going to compromise this case. But as we were saying before, it seems to go against fundamentally who he is, or at least how he perceives himself and the type of man that he is. She calls him out on that innocence or maybe that act anyway that he's trying to pull off that famous line. She says, what's your bag, Clute? What do you like? Are you a talker, a button freak? Maybe you like to get your chest walked around with high-heeled shoes. So she's making him uncomfortable, but she's familiar, very familiar with these type of men that she perceives to be hypocrites. So there's, again, a lot of danger here for this character as he becomes more and more involved, more and more attached to her. And they actually do develop a relationship. But the little twist here that I like as well with this pick, Josh— is that the risk to him actually becomes greater the more her feelings for him actually become more real. That great monologue she essentially has where she's talking to her therapist, the way Brie expresses what she feels when she's with him and the weird kind of tormented headspace it's putting her in, you realize that it's having an effect on her, but in doing so, it could come back to affect him. I just wish that I could let things happen and uh, enjoy it, you know, for what it is and while it lasts and, and, uh, and relax about it. But all the time, all the time, I keep feeling the need to destroy it, to, to, to break it off, to... Go back to the to the the comfort of being numb again. Um. That key line, I keep feeling the need to destroy. The more she is developing real feelings, the more she's involved in a sexual relationship where she doesn't feel like she has to act, the more that puts her in a precarious state of mind. And what that's going to do is going to lead her to a place as she says, where she's probably going to have to break it off or she's going to have to do something to get back to that numb feeling, that comforting feeling of numbness that she's so used to. Well, in doing so, she's going to absolutely break a guy like Clute. I thought about Clute for quite a long time for this list because I do like the movie, but I realize, especially for the topic here, it's centered around the, the cop in love, the detective in love. It would have been dishonest with me because... I've just, there's something I've got with 1970s Donald Sutherland here and don't look now, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I'm going to have to work this out with my own therapist, Adam. I'm sure it's me. 
It's not Donald Sutherland. Yeah, it's you. <laughs> Whatever that might be, um, because I do like the movie overall, and I love, love what Jane Fonda is yeah. doing in Clute. So, yeah, glad you glad you were able to make the pick, though, because I do think it is a good one that fits for this list. All right, my number three is not a cop, but a member of East Germany's Stasi or State Security Service. It's Captain Gard Wiesler, played by Ulrich Muir in 2006's The Lives of Others. This was Germany's best foreign language film Oscar winner, directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. It's set in 1984 and focuses on Captain Wiesler's assignment to spy on a playwright and the playwright's actress girlfriend. Now, as he learns more about them, why they've been targeted, he begins to second-guess his loyalties to the state. So, I haven't seen this since 2006. Maybe I'm stretching things here, but, you know, I don't remember it being exactly romantic, but I do have memories of something almost like a platonic love triangle among Captain Wiesler, the playwright, played by Sebastian Kaw, and then the actress played by Martina Gedek. As Wiesler slowly comes to protect them, makes that choice to risk himself doing that, he does it out of something that is like love. And, and maybe it's more for them as artists than romantic figures, but there is definitely a deep affection that is driving him to take this risk. And certainly, as his superiors begin to suspect that he's not doing his job, it becomes very dangerous for him. Now, listeners who have seen this more recently can maybe let me know if, yeah, if I'm pushing it with this pick. But I do also remember that it ends, the movie ends with an inscription that could almost be interpreted as a love note. It kind of jumps forward in time as the characters have separated and there's been loss. And it has this very bittersweet ending that confirms, again, I think a, a deep sort of affection among those three principal players. So that's The Lives of Others, my number three pick with a Stasi captain in love. A film reviewed favorably here on Film Spotting 15 years ago or so, but one I don't remember vividly enough to take issue with your choice. And, you know, I'm going to probably stretch our definition of cops in love here myself, maybe even with this pick a little bit, though I wasn't surprised to see when you put this list out on Twitter and called for any ideas or recommendations. I think the very first response included an image from this film. So my cops are Billy Costigan and Colin Sullivan for Martin Scorsese's The Departed. And look, anytime I can talk about this movie, the happier I am. But you've got a love triangle of sorts in this movie between Matt Damon's Colin, Leonardo DiCaprio's Billy, and Vera Farmiga's Madeline. She's a police psychiatrist. Damon's the up-and-coming, ambitious cop on the police force. And DiCaprio, of course, is undercover trying to bring down the, the mentor and benefactor to Damon's character Frank Costello played by Jack Nicholson. I say it's a love triangle of sorts because if I remember the movie correctly, they don't know the other is involved. I think Billy knows that Madeline is in a relationship with someone. He doesn't know that it's the guy he's looking for. But two of the best scenes in this movie are scenes with Farmiga's character. One, DiCaprio, maybe the first time he's in her office where he explains to her that most cops signed up to use their guns, and the first date between her and Damon. DiCaprio deservedly gets the praise for this movie, Josh, and he's certainly the character 
we all like more and are rooting for. But Damon has maybe never been better than he is here in The Departed. And you see it in this scene, in the effortlessness of his wit in order to disarm her. So what's it like having people find themselves in your office all day long? Does it get messy with all those feelings flying around? Why? Does that make you uncomfortable? No, 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 no. No? No, no, no. No, I'm not on your couch. (laughs) Well, you know what Floyd said about the Irish. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you actually do, I'll see you again. Who says I want to see you again? Don't you? You should see your face. Don't you? Of course I want to see you again. (laughs) What Freud said about the Irish is, we're the only people who are impervious to psychoanalysis. Hmm. Yeah, he said that. I know he did. Why do you do it then? So at play here, you also have the inappropriateness of the relationship between Billy and Madeline that she's treating him as a patient and they become romantically linked. But it's at number three, for me, meaning it could be higher because of how much I love this film, because Colin, maybe like Mark Ruffalo's character in In the Cut, isn't really in love with Madeline. Or you could maybe give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he could have genuine feelings of affection for her. I'm not sure that that character is capable of that or not. That's pretty charitable. But their relationship is still so central to the movie and that it's tied directly to the notions of masculinity that Scorsese is really interested in exploring here. And he does it in some pretty playful and hilarious ways on that date. What precipitates the exchange we heard is this very phallic dessert being set down right between them, which they both actually pause and and laugh at. And after a night together later, they're both despondent. And she says, oh, It happens to guys all the time. It's really not that big of a deal. Just as she's taking a bite out of a banana. It's so beautiful. And the first words Damon's character, or that Damon himself, utters on screen, I'll refrain from repeating here for multiple reasons, but he's none too pleased with the results of a rugby match between the police and firemen. And he lets out a couple of homosexual slurs, but within that, one of my favorite lines, actually, in the entire movie, again, unfortunately, won't repeat it here, but people who know the movie will know what I'm talking about. He's a character who's constantly overcompensating with slurs like that, with hitting on women like he does with Madeline the first time he sees her, not because he's this big macho man who really is into women and can't help himself. It's because he's exactly the opposite. He's a character who's leading a double life as a cop and part of Costello's crew. And he's also, I think the movie doesn't explicitly say, but makes it as implicit as you possibly can. It suggests that he's also leading a double life as a gay man. And this relationship with Madeline is all part of that finely crafted plan, that finely crafted identity that he has created for himself. And he has to act this part and he needs her And he needs to be in this relationship with her in order to pull off that part and keep rising up that ladder and achieve what he needs to achieve. And if that relationship falters, it does risk tearing all of that down. Yeah, well, both of these, the male characters, lead characters are essentially and for different 
reasons in their background and motivations towards where they want to go. They're both weasels. And that's why the casting of Damon and DiCaprio are perfect, because I've long thought for all of the other characters they play, that's their sweet spot. Each of them are absolutely in their sweet spot when they're playing a duplicitous weasel of some sort, which is, you know, also an element, I think, quite often of these relationships that we're talking about on this list. All right, just how dangerous is the romance between detective and suspect in Decision to Leave? Our review of Park Chanuk's latest is next, plus the rest of our Cops in Love picks and a round of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now... If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. A scene there from Martin McDonough's Banshees of Inisherin, which opens in limited release next weekend, including here in Chicago. We thought we might have a review of it on this week's show. That didn't happen, but we are set to see it in time for next week's show. Along with that review, we were looking for a good top five tie-in, and our PA, Betty, came up with a good one. One of her ideas was bromances, that is, depictions of male friendships in movies. And I thought, at first, surely we've done that top five before. It would seemingly be the most appropriate tie-in with this film, which I know stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as a pair of longtime friends who find themselves in conflict after Gleeson decides to end the friendship. And I went back into the archive, Josh, to find that we've done friendship movies. That was a hundred years ago with Sam and tying in with Booksmart here recently in 2019, we did female friendships in movies, but we never have focused specifically on male. Long overdue. It's going to be there will be a lot of rich options to choose from for this. I've already seen from some of the suggestions coming in on social media that we'll have to do some some sifting to get to the, the rich top five for each of us. I'll tease everybody with this, too. We haven't inducted a movie into the Pantheon for a while. I think maybe, and I should know this, I think maybe we haven't done it since In the Mood for Love. Did we do that as part of our Wong Kar Wai marathon at the end of it? We did do that. Uh, I'm not sure if we've done another one since. We've yeah. certainly talked about a Pantheon-worthy film, but I don't know if we've gone through the official ceremony. Right. It may happen next week on the show. So get your finest tucks out for that formal ceremony. Also next week, results from the current film spotting poll, which asks you to choose between two fall slash winter films that also happen to be stop motion animated. The Nightmare Before Christmas 
And yes, we're declaring it a Thanksgiving movie for the purposes of our poll. Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox. Josh, have you had a peek at the results yet? No, no, I haven't. Uh, can you tell me? I, I, I'll just give a little more incentive before you reveal where those are at. If you vote for Mr. Fox, you'll get one of those power fists from the Black Wolf. You know, I mean, that alone <laughs> should be worth it. Well, we both thought Fantastic Mr. Fox would win, and it is winning currently. Do you have a guess on where it stands? 60-40. 60-40 is a really good guess. I probably would have gone even higher, honestly, maybe two-thirds to one-third, but it's tighter than that. It's 54% to 46%. Okay. Reason to vote yet. Yeah. Reason to vote. A lot of appreciation out there for the Henry Selleck film in addition to the Wes Anderson. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We are excited in just about three weeks' time. To play trivia spotting again. It's our 23rd installment, 7.30 p.m., Friday, November 4th, in the midst of rounding up some special guest captains now. Quizmaster Thomas Todd, I would say, is preparing his questions, but I think he waits until the day of. I think that's just that's part of his routine, Josh, mm. and you can't mess with it. It's worked so far. Yeah, absolutely. Don't shake it up if you've worked such magic as he always does. This trivia spotting event is open to all film spotting listeners. Our family members do get a presale opportunity and get a discount on the tickets, but it's open to anyone. Pub style trivia over Zoom. Always a good time. We've said it before. People have so much fun on trivia spotting that a good chunk of them just hang out in the Zoom afterwards for like seven hours. Yeah. We hours of the morning, I guess, evening. They're on there for a long time. That's all I know. They are indeed. You can get your tickets and more info at filmspotting.net. We also have something else we got to plug, Josh, that we're really excited about. A little bit more time to get your tickets. Potentially, we'll see how fast they go. But you may recall that we were all bright-eyed and so eager to embark on our 15th anniversary tour. <laughs> Celebrating right. film spotting back in 2020. First stop on the tour, Chicago. That happened at the Music Box in February 2020. Had Brooklyn's The Bell House booked for June. Had an August date at LA set. We were finalizing Austin details. And why then, are you just why are you just rubbing then, all this in? What happened? What happened to the world, Josh? I, I mean, I, I can barely remember the before times, Adam. So it's all been a blur since. I think we're celebrating our 30th anniversary now. Right. I don't know. Correct me. Exactly. But we promised to bring back the Bell House show. We can't wait to do that live show in Brooklyn on Saturday, January 14th. Great venue. And those tickets are on sale right now. More information about that show available at filmspotting.net as well. Just click on events. And we are planning to do our 2022 rap party here. Rap Something party on the road. Yeah. Something we've done before, always here in Chicago, and in the past couple of years, it's been in studio, but we're bringing it back to the live audience. Here are the special guests who have signed up, Josh. Maybe you can do the honors and throw out some of the names. Do you remember who all is coming to participate on that stage at the Bell House? I mean, we've got Griffin Newman. We've got Matt Singer and Elson Wilmore. We've got, I mean, is it true that Dana Stevens... Yes. as well, is going to be joining us. And then, of course, Sam, our producer, Sam That's Van right. Hogren, will be there live. 
and it's going to be a blast. This is always a fun show, a fun one to put together with all the different topics. It moves really quickly. We hit a ton of movies and with guests like that, we're going to be able to bring in a different perspective for each category. So I think, is that everybody or did you, did you you snag somebody else? No, you got it. We'll see who else we can round up as part of our event and the meet and greet beforehand. We will have a VIP opportunity. You can get that ticket and have a chance to hang out with us, have a few drinks before the show, meet those great guests that we just talked about. And we can't wait. Looking forward to it. January 14th. It is a Saturday night in Brooklyn, New York. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's a new pairing, a movie we're going to talk about here shortly, Josh, Decision to Leave, and an interesting choice, David Lean's Brief Encounter. Yeah, I think they chose this because someone referenced that Park Chan-wook has pointed to Brief Encounter as an inspiration for Decision to Leave. So I think I see where he was probably going with that. And I'm sure that the next picture show is going to find all sorts of connections to explore with this pairing. Your hosts at the next picture show, of course, are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the podcast post every Tuesday, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. The boy had to be let go. The boy had to be given a chance. I have to do that. I had to say, f*** you, and f*** what I owe you, and f*** everything that's going on between us. And that's what I had to do. But I'm not fighting you. And I accept totally everything you've got to do. I accept it. Totally. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, you say all that fucking stuff, I can't fucking shoot you now, can I? That was Ray Fiennes and Brendan Gleeson in 2008's In Bruges, written and directed by Martin McDonough. A couple weeks ago, along with that massacre, Adam and I shared our must-see picks for the Chicago International Film Festival, which wraps up this weekend. We also had a review of Anna Rose Homer and Celia Davis's very good God's Creatures. So why that scene from In Bruges? Well, we heard from Rob in Gaithersburg, Maryland. You guys did a lovely job with In Bruges this week. It's the first film from Martin McDonough, the director of The Banshees of Inishirin, as discussed in your Chicago Film Festival segment, and a strong contender for most quotable comedy of the 2000s. I can't think of a quote fit for radio. So I'll just say, and yeah, Rob, we're just going to have to leave that out, but we appreciate the effort. Yeah, that would be a better scene for us to have massacred. Maybe we had plenty of profanity in our scene, as I recall, Josh, that we had to sanitize for radio. But Rob, of course, correct. We were thinking about not only the Banshees of Inisherin coming out here soon in Chicago, but playing the Chicago Film Festival. We did talk about our most quotable movies of the 80s and possibly doing a top five about the most quotable movies of the other recent decades as well. And In Bruges definitely would have to be part of that conversation. But then we also talked about God's Creatures, as you noted, set in Ireland and In Bruges may not be set in Ireland, but it is written and directed by and starring some fine Irish men. Thank you, Rob, for that. Thank you to everybody who participated in that massacre theater. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Ed Felt from Pullman, Washington. Congratulations, Ed. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we'll set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt. <laughs> 
How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard the Third. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it! Now look at me. Look at me. I can't go out there, and I won't say that stupid line one more time. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and we have a scene that I don't think we need to provide any hints for, Josh. It should be pretty clear anyway what it ties into on this week's show. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we've been talking about quotable movies, Adam, and I've I've mentioned how <laughs> don't do a lot of that now, but I think in my younger years, this is one, yeah, I probably tossed a few of these lines back and forth with some friends in middle school. Yeah, I can say that I definitely did, but it was in middle school and in high school and maybe last week as well. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) All right. I'm going to start it off, so you're going to give me the action. And action. This should be what you're looking for, Lieutenant. Shipping and employment records for Pier 32. Thank you. I've heard that police work is dangerous. It is. That's why I carry a big gun. Aren't you afraid it might go off accidentally? I used to have that problem. And what did you do about it? I just think about baseball. Hey, that's a honey of an ankle bracelet that you have there. Ugh, did it slip down there again? (laughs) And (laughs) scene. So your female voice, Adam, was on point as it usually is. But then that ugh, it was like you you dropped a Sasquatch in there all of a sudden. I I really wanted her to seem exasperated, Josh. (laughs) Okay, she was. Are you you critiquing my choices? (laughs) No, sorry, sorry. (laughs) That's not allowed in Massacre Theater. This is a supportive environment. Aware of that. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, October 31st. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. Before we wrap up our top five cops in love, we did want to spend a few minutes on the movie that inspired the top five, Park Chanuk's Decision to Leave, which is currently playing in limited release and expands to more theaters on the 28th. Decision to Leave is part police procedural, part forbidden romance. Park Hale is police detective He Jun. He's investigating the suspicious death of a man on a mountaintop. Tong Wei is the man's wife. She is also a suspect. This does seem to be a little bit of a departure for Park Chanuk, Josh, at least in terms of its approach to violence and its approach to sex. It's not as explicit in many ways as his other films, including Old Boy and Stoker and The Handmaiden. Is that part of the reason why you liked it so much? Or are there other factors at play? Yeah, I think the surprise for me, and I'm by no means authoritative when it comes to his films. I think I've seen five now of his. Um, I think the surprise for me was the depth of the emotional resonance. And I know The Handmaiden had an emotional component, and perhaps those who are completists will be able to point to other films, even some of his more severe early efforts that have that at play as well. Maybe you'll be able to speak to this, Adam. But for me, from the ones that I have seen, it's always been the technique, the inventiveness, 
the style, and I don't mean that pejoratively at all, that has impressed me with Park Chanuk's movies. But there hasn't been that much more. He's he's seemed to be more interested in shocking and provoking audiences from the films I've seen than genuinely moving them. And I came out of decision to leave feeling both things in equal measure. I mean, we probably don't have enough time to go into all of the technical brilliance in this movie. I'll just say straight up at the top here, my front runner by far for best editing in a film, the transitions Mm -hmm. in these movies and the way it makes a film that's two hours plus feel like one fluid dream because of the inventiveness of not just cutting from one scene or time or place to the another, but sometimes um, bringing us back and forth in a way that gently carries us is insanely proficient in ways that I haven't seen in so many other films. So all that, that wouldn't have surprised me if you had said, listen, this is what Decision to Leave has. But in this central relationship between the detective and uh, this widow, who's also a suspect, you do find depths of yearning and depths of, there's a word that Park Chinook and his co-screenwriter here, who he's worked with on a number of films, Suk Young Jun, uses, and that's shattered. And I think that is the perfect word. They don't push on it too hard, but the perfect word to express, again, the level of emotional complexity at work here. As this relationship develops, it travels along some pathways that we're familiar with from other film noirs um, and detective thrillers, police thrillers, but also goes in directions that, yeah, I can see the brief encounter comparison that um, the folks are going to explore on the next Picture Show, our sister podcast, and I think Park Chanuk has even cited um, in terms of an inspiration. So yeah, just that emotional depth was kind of what surprised me and seems um, kind of a, a, a bit of a distinction from those other films I've seen. Yeah, that emotional depth is definitely there. There's also humor in this oh, film yes. that I'll say Good point. stood out to me more the second time where you know what's coming and you can just kind of settle in a little earlier and you're not trying to figure it out as much. It's especially noticeable near the beginning of the film. And I just don't think of Park Chanuk as someone who typically treads in comedy, but after the man dies he falls from the mountaintop and they're investigating on the scene you've got a moment where one of the cops is like he bounced here and there and then here and there's just something about the the delivery of it that's very funny and the moment that follows it where the partner to our main character is then being dragged up the mountain they're actually they're going up the mountain to investigate the scene and he's like where's the helicopter and instead he just gets physically attached to Hejun who drags him up the mountain that's that's like slapstick right yeah it really is and there are multiple moments like that in this film but it really is the level of visual details it's the way the movie here's what we we know we're going to get from Park Chanuk, we know we're going to get some sensuality and an exploration of that, but here it's this combination of sensuality and the sensory experience that makes it so profound. Think about how many times you pay attention to characters feeling things, the touch, the smell, the sights. It it really does— Eating together. 
yeah, eating together. It draws from all of those senses. And you mentioned eating. I mean, maybe the most romantic scene in the film, the most intimate moment in the film occurs before our main couple has really let their feelings be known. She's being interrogated and he is smitten with her right away, but he's interrogating her and he orders the good sushi. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just revealing that he orders the good sushi, but then the rhythm with which mm. they put their boxes of food away. Yes. And, and how that works, it's almost as if they've they've known each other their whole lives. Or cleaning the table. Couple. Yeah, yep. cleaning the table. They They fall right into it and they've barely just met. And I love those moments like that that really are just based on some subtle physicality and and blocking of the scene there's one later a moment with his wife Hejun's wife who is now accusing him of something and the way Park Chanuk expresses the character's shock at being accused of what she is saying he might have done isn't to cut to a close-up of him, have him react in a certain way, or be very expressive. He actually just kind of drops his bags and hunches his shoulders, and his arms go to the ground. And we're watching it in a two-shot and a medium shot, and it's such a small moment, but it still caught my eye, Josh, in the way that with the economy, again, the efficiency of a moment like that, you don't have to do anything dramatic with the camera. You don't have to... You don't have to do a shot, reverse shot kind of scenario. You actually just let the character adjust how they're sitting in the seat, and it expresses everything that he's feeling. Yeah, these are two incredible lead performances. I mean, Park Hill as the detective, he, the delivery of that line I mentioned, Shattered, is such a debilitating moment. And for me, the linchpin to the entire film, it, it kind of defines who he thought of himself previous to this relationship, and then within the relationship, and then where we go in the film's, you know, back third, which changes all of that. And the way he carries that, to your point, physically even, is incredibly impressive. And then, you know, Tang Wei, who I remember from Lost Caution uh, many years ago being so good. And here, what an exquisitely delicate turn on the femme fatale, which in some ways she is, but you tend to think of femme fatales as conniving, you know, in the in the classic film noirs as having a plan and um, putting that plan in motion. And the men in the movie are their pawns in some ways. And there's something different going on here. Although mm -hmm. she has some of the characteristics um, of a femme fatale, it's also almost like she's being pulled in equally with him, but for different reasons. And that's a very, again, delicate thing to communicate as a performer because you lose that that conniving tool you had and you're going to have to express other things that are maybe a little bit more subtle, um, a little bit more genuinely emotional. I keep coming back to that idea of the genuine mm -hmm. emotion at the heart of this film. And I think uh, Tang Wei is a big reason why there is so much of it here. Yeah, there's no doubt. But you're right. The real star of the show here is the camera work and it's the editing. And oh, wow. it's, it's the way you even just watch some scenes play out through these lenses. And there's a lot of playing with the idea of lenses and mirrored versions and visions of people. Think about those interrogation scenes where sometimes we're watching through multiple 
monitors, a yeah. monitor and glass, and there's distorted visions as we're trying to get a handle on these characters and their motivations. And the thing Park Chinook does here a few times where he does compress time and he gives us a moment like the one where he's watching her with his binoculars as she is going about her job after her husband's death. She's a caregiver and he's watching her and he then puts himself instantly, literally the director puts the actor then in the room with him yeah. as if he's actually watching her from just kind of over her shoulder. He's in the same space. He feels as if he is physically within the same space with her, even though he's actually in the car down on the street. And the best one is maybe that moment. And here's where you know it's maybe a little bit of a different Park Chanuk, a moment where you think you're going to get the payoff, if you will, of some graphic violence. He's chased down a criminal that's part of another case, but they overlap it beautifully with their relationship, this central relationship. He is chased down this suspect and he's on a roof and talk about motifs that occur again and again in this film, characters on the edges of things being centered in the frame and sort of about to head off something that happens even here in this scene where they're on a roof. He's confronting this criminal. The criminal takes out a pair of scissors and holds it to his neck and there's this kind of standoff Hejun doesn't want him to die in this moment and what happens next we get a cut to just him just Hejun on the roof and then we get some other cuts after that that take us to the aftermath of it where there's news reports about this incident playing out and we see him kind of reckoning with it and his emotional state but we don't get the moment itself where the character does something drastic and takes his life into his own hands. We don't get that dramatic moment. We get what happens right after it. We don't need it. We don't actually need to see it. Yeah. And that's another example, you know, of just jumping around in time just a little bit to give mm -hmm. us different perspectives on an experience. And here's an even more granular example of the editing at work here. And we should probably note the editor on Decision to Leave is Kim sang Bum. But there's that moment where Detective Hejun is in bed with his wife and they're sleeping lying side by side. And we get this cut to an overhead shot of two cars at night parked side by side, positioned very similarly. Like one could be his body and one could be her body. But then what they do is they cut back and forth at least one time between the bed and those cars, cementing the visual similarities and then the final cutback, we see that Hajun, the detective, is standing by those cars. Mm -hmm. And again, very granular, doesn't reveal anything about the mystery. It doesn't, you know, you could have done it a different way and the movie would have been fine. But just the decision to hold our hand as viewers in that unique way, I think, adds up as you get these examples throughout the film to be an incredibly different viewing experience from any other movie that mm -hmm. was telling this story. Did you notice this is the second week in a row where Mahler's fifth? I did. Yeah, I, I jotted How that down that? in my notebook. <laughs> I mean, one more and we have a trend, right? There you go. Decision to Leave is a film I have a feeling is going to come up again here as we get into our best films of the year in December. And as we talk about some of our favorite moments, certainly going to be in contention for a few different categories. It's playing in limited release. It expands 
including to theaters here in Chicago on the 28th. If you see Decision to Leave and agree or disagree with us, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Let's go ahead, Josh, and wrap up our top five inspired by Park Chanuk's latest. We have two more picks for Cops in Love in Movies. What do you got? My number two is Dale Hurricane Dixon, played by Bill Paxton in One False Move. This is a movie, I think this movie's reputation seems to grow with each passing year. A grungy little neo-noir from 1992, directed by Carl Franklin. Franklin's next film after this would be The Great Devil in a Blue Dress. Paxton's Hurricane Dixon, he's the police chief in this small Arkansas town. And he gets word from some L.A. detectives that a trio of suspected murderers is likely headed his way. So that includes Billy Bob Thornton and Michael Beach as two of the criminals. Thornton actually co-wrote the script here. Cinda Williams is the third. And her character, Fantasia, has a previous relationship with Dixon, the sheriff, but he doesn't tell this to the L.A. detectives when they first contact him, and that is to everyone's peril. Now, I was reading some old reviews of One False Move. I remember at the time Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, both champions of the movie. They helped it earn a theatrical release rather than having it go straight to video. But I did find also this L.A. Times review from Peter Rayner that speaks particularly to Paxton's performance in a way that is helpful for this list. He wrote, Hurricane is hepped up and convivial, a good old boy whose boisterous streak masks a gnawing discomfort. Paxton is a superb actor, and he clues us in early that Hurricane is more complicated than he lets on. Hurricane doesn't fully recognize his own complications either. And I do think it's that last part where his feelings for Cinda Williams' Fantasia do come in. Again, it's not exactly an active romance in this movie, so a bit of a different angle on it, but it's definitely that past relationship that complicates this present in fairly tragic ways. Hmm. So, like I said, One False Move's reputation, it's grown since 92, but I do feel like it still needs more attention, so definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. We're we're almost into November, so if you're looking for a neo-noir you haven't seen to add to your list for next month, check out One False Move. A movie that's come up before here on the show made a top five or two, and for good reason. A movie I love, one that somehow didn't come up at all in my research, Josh, and Maybe that's because of the inactive nature of the relationship, but I think you you sold it well. And again, that's a film I never mind bringing up here on Film Spotting. My number two is Wendell Bud White, Russell Crowe's character from Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential. He is a character who doesn't strike you as particularly romantic. He does quite enjoy beating up on men who beat up on women. So that that's tied more to his childhood angst and trauma of watching his mother suffer at the hands of his father. But clearly his entire psyche and really all of his behavior is wrapped up in this relationship that he has with women. The relationship is with Lynn Bracken, Kim Basinger's character, who is a high-end prostitute who has been made up to look like Veronica Lake. Pierce Patchett, played by David Strathern, is her pimp. And Bud goes to investigate the death of another call girl and ends up at her place and ends up in a relationship with her against his better judgment. 
There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. Well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Obviously a compromise of this investigation and his work to be involved with her. Also very deliberately used against him when he sees pictures of Edmund Exley, that's Guy Pierce's character, sleeping with Lynn after he's been willfully seduced by her to get those pictures. They knew when that was arranged, Pierce and Lynn, that that would send Bud into a rage and he'd probably kill Exley, which he almost does. But I also think that the relationship is part of this journey that this movie is on with that character towards him being humanized, for lack of a better word. The Wendell Bud White we meet at the beginning of this film is a thug. He's someone who carries out orders blindly. He hurts people when he's told to hurt people or when he sees someone hurting a woman, but he pretty much just follows orders and doesn't do much thinking for himself. And the man we eventually see at the very end of this film is someone very different than that initial character we meet. I just really love this character and Crow's performance, Josh. He is such an intimidating badass as Bud White, and he is electric on screen. I had it in my head that maybe this fell kind of right in the middle of that time when Crow seemed to be really at his peak in Hollywood, and then was reminded, looking at IMDb, that no, actually, it was really his launching point, his star-making turn. I know some people might point to virtuosity, and that was definitely a, a big performance that preceded it, but this is 97, and it's later, 99, 2000 and on, where we get The Insider, and we get Gladiator, and we get A Beautiful Mind. But this was the performance that put Russell Crowe on the map as a movie star. Like, you couldn't wait to see him again in whatever it was after he played Bud White. Yeah, that's how I remember it as well. I mean, I think I first saw him in uh, Australian film Proof, and then I remember him being more on the art house radar with Romper Stomper, I think. But still, it wasn't until, in terms of Hollywood, what you're talking about, yeah, for me as well, it wasn't until L.A. Confidential. And then you think it's sort of, you know, he had a couple films in between, but yeah, those two pictures together after L.A. Confidential, but The Insider and Gladiator, I mean, talk about cementing, following up on the promise that you showed in something like L.A. Confidential. Uh, that was definitely quite a run for Crow there. All right, we're at our number one choices. And I knew, Adam, when we settled on this topic, that there had to be a potential title for this list from our 40s noir marathon. But it wasn't until I went back, looked at our lineup, and I realized, oh, of course, there's the perfect pick. 1940s Laura, directed by Otto Preminger. Now, for the first two-thirds of this movie... Yep, the love affair is fairly one-sided because Laura, the title character played by Gene Tierney, 
She has been murdered. At least that's what we've been told. She's dead. And Detective Lieutenant Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, he mostly falls in love with her memory, her Mm -hmm. her specter, really. Now, when we reviewed this, I talked about that scene in Laura's apartment where McPherson, and this all takes place under the gaze of her moody portrait that rests on that mantle of her fireplace. He goes through her things. He smells her perfume even and begins to succumb to her spell. Of course, he also succumbs because of David Raxon's mesmerizing score. Later on in the film, Laura turns up. We learn that it was another woman who was murdered in her apartment. That means that she now is a suspect, but a suspect he's already predisposed to love, to be infatuated with. So even though McPherson arrests her, he tries to interrogate her at the station. He's too intoxicated at this point to fully go through with it. This pick works as a nice bookend, I think, within the cut, my number five, because things actually turn out a little better than they usually do in these noirs. So I'm going out on a positive note with Laura's Detective Lieutenant Mark McPherson as my number one cop in love. I love it. You're right. That movie was one of the standouts from that marathon and perfectly appropriate for this list. My number one cop in love, I'm going to bookend this list here with another 80s pick, starting with Catherine Bigelow's point break. I'm going to end with Peter Weir's Witness, and the cop is Harrison Ford's John Book. Witness was one of those movies that when I was a kid in the 80s and it was on HBO, or even on into the 90s and up to today, if it came on, I would find myself glued to this film. And I was thinking about why, as I was reflecting on this list today, it's not like it's particularly quotable. It's not as if there are any big action scenes or spectacle that you remember. It's not particularly funny. It's not entertaining in that way anyway. But what do you have? You've just got incredible talents like Harrison Ford and Peter Weir throwing 100 mile an hour fastballs in this movie. The The plot is centered around a kid who's an Amish boy named Samuel, played by Lucas Haas. His mother is Rachel Kelly McGillis. They come to Harrison Ford's John Book to protect Samuel, and they discover that it's actually corrupt cops who are caught up in something and committed a crime that Samuel witnessed, which means Samuel's life is in danger. Book's idea is to get them back to their Amish community, blend in with them, and try and protect them there, get them out of the city. There is so much heat in this relationship between Book and Rachel, precisely because of how forbidden it is. There's danger for Book just being there in that he's he's already turned his back on his order the police these corrupt cops and the more he becomes enamored with her and even the more he becomes kind of enamored with this way of life or at least some of the things this way of life has to offer the bigger risk he has of ever going back to the normal life that he at least initially is so eager to get back to. Of course, having a kind of relationship with her might also compromise his ability to protect her and Samuel as well. But the real danger here, the person who really has everything to lose is Rachel. And so Book's conflict isn't just this kind of 
push-pull in the Amish world and the secular world, but if he acts on his feelings for her or lets them both go too far because he sees her reciprocating those feelings, then he knows that, I'm going to use Bree Daniels' word from Clute, he knows that he's destroying her, that she would be cast out. She'd probably lose Samuel. She'd lose everything about her way of life. And so we do in this movie, I mentioned the heat, Josh, we get the scene where she finally takes the bonnet off, says, okay, I'm going to violate the rules of my community. Symbolically, she's going to break from that. And she goes to him and she embraces him and they do kiss very passionately. But you also get those unconsummated scenes like the one where she's taking a bath or she's bathing herself, I think by candlelight and she becomes aware that he's watching and she continues anyway. And then on a lighter note, but still just as steamy is the scene where he's working on his car. He's trying to get his car repaired. I'm thinking of him now, sort of like, I don't know, Han Solo trying to fix the Millennium Falcon to get off some planet or Luke Skywalker trying to fix his X-Wing. He's stuck there. He's trying to fix the car and he gets the radio working and Wonderful World by Sam Cooke comes on. Presenting golden oldies. We've got some great ones and some old ones coming right up. Here's one takes me back. I'm afraid to say it dates me. Maybe it dates you. Oh, oh, this is great. This, This is the best. And here, Josh, is where the radio and talking about these over audio just just doesn't do justice to this moment. The music's playing. They're looking at each other. Ford is circling her. And he has that kind of serious look on his face, all directed at her, all of his energy directed at Kelly McGillis. And that look turns into his signature smirky kind of smile and you get the sense that McGillis's heart is beating a thousand miles per hour and then they start singing and dancing to the song they finally loosen up all that sexual tension in that moment but of course at the same time they're actually becoming more physically intimate with each other the movie is filled with wonderful scenes like that that yeah even when I was 10 years old 11 years old that's what I was drawn to I was drawn to just these wonderful character interactions and those big feelings that I didn't understand then, but I knew the movie was was dealing with that I think I was always drawn to. Yeah, it's such a good film. And as you're talking about why would it hold appeal to someone around the age that we were, I, I think for me, you know, it, it felt grown up. Yeah. And I felt... Like I was maybe clearly wasn't, but I'd like to think of myself as growing up as a viewer in the mid 1980s, just as Ford was growing up as an actor, just as Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Like already then I knew, even though I recognize now those movies are brilliant pieces of pop entertainment. I knew they weren't respected in the way like the stuff that was honored at the Oscars was. Then you see something like Witness, you see your screen hero Harrison Ford in it. And you're like, oh, he's growing up as well as an actor. Just when I'm starting to, and I was way too young to think this, but taking movies seriously, Mm -hmm. right? And think about 
Mosquito Coast with Ford from 86. Also, Peter Weir made my recent top five utopias gone wrong list. That is a similar example where this guy you knew of as the most exciting performer in these popcorn entertainments, taking steps into more grown-up fare that, you know, supposedly the two of us as preteens thought we were ready for, I guess. Those are our top five cops in love. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Any last-minute honorable mentions you want to throw in, Josh? Uh, You know, neither of us has mentioned Basic Instinct, and I have a defense I don't think I've ever seen it. I'm not sure. Seriously. I might have seen it, but I don't know. It's like one of those movies that's talked about so much and you've seen the clips of so often. I can't recall if I've actually seen Basic Instinct, so I couldn't, you know, in good conscience, put it on this list. Yeah, I've never given any serious thought to the movie or Joe Esterhaus. I'm just confessing that. I'm not saying I'm right. I know that there are people who really appreciate his work and there are defenses of his work. Of course, it's it's smutty fun and it's iconic, but it's not one I seriously considered for this list. All right. So there, there's our excuse. And then I did want to throw out two other listener suggestions we got on Twitter. Stephen Raisin said, Gary Oldman, Romeo is Bleeding, underrated classic. I'll take his word for it. And then longtime listener Peter Labuza threw out there Clint Eastwood's The Gauntlet, one I have not seen. So thanks for putting that on our radar, Peter. Yeah, I think the only two other movies I'd mention here that haven't come up, speaking of Harrison Ford, yeah, maybe not law enforcement, so ineligible, but whatever he is, the detective of sorts that he is in Blade Runner and his relationship with Sean Young, certainly some noir elements there, Josh. You have to at least think about it for this list. And then another stretch a little bit, but Sin City and Bruce Willis's character, John Hartigan, oh, sure. his entire life and world revolving around his love, his platonic love yeah. for... Nancy, the 11-year-old, as we meet her, I think, at the beginning of the film, and then Jessica Alba portrays her later. Everything he does is to protect her and certainly puts his life in peril. Bruce Willis there playing that role. That's one I considered as well. Yeah, that qualifies absolutely. Our top five cops in love, feedback at filmspotting.net is the email, and that is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. At Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which asks you to choose just one of these stop motion, cozy season standbys, fantastic Mr. Fox, or the nightmare before Christmas. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. Filmspotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspotting.supportingcast.fm and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive, which goes way back to 2005. That is all available at filmspotting.supportingcast.fm. Out in wide release this weekend, you can see Dwayne Johnson as the title super anti-hero in Black Adam. Ticket to Paradise is out. George Clooney and Julia Roberts as a divorced couple who team up to stop their daughter, Caitlin Deaver, from marrying. Yeah, Adam, did uh, did Sarah tell you you're babysitting Friday night? She's coming with me and Debbie to see it because you scoffed, scoffed that it was even worth your time. 
Yeah, I'm just a serious film goer, Josh. Oh, there it is. There it is. (laughs) Not looking for frivolous fun. Set the trap and he walks right into it. (laughs) Out on digital, The Good Nurse with Eddie Redmayne as the bad nurse, allegedly responsible for dozens of patient deaths, and Jessica Chastain as the good nurse who helps to stop him. That's based on a true story. That all tracks. (laughs) Out in limited release is... Till, the true story of Amy Till Mobley's pursuit of justice for the notorious lynching of her son Emmett Till. And you can see Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson in Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inisherin. And we will do our top five bromances. Yes, male friendships on screen. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com. 